I want to talk to you today about letting Jesus walk amongst the tombs. You know, it's always been really, really interesting to me that we're seemingly born with this consciousness of a cosmic conflict. I mean, think about it. I think even, well, for me, my, my life experience is through the lens of growing up a little boy. So for me as a little boy, I grew up not remembering a time when someone told me that there was a good versus an evil. I just grew up instinctively knowing it and then, and then playing constantly the good guys versus the bad guys. It was the cops versus the robbers. My young son, Keegan, uh, he uh, will turn seven in just a couple of weeks, but he, he in, in, in all his wisdom, he told me this last week, as he was sitting pondering the deeper things of life, which is him thinking through uh, Disney narratives of his favorite Disney movies, he said, we should always be the, be-, be the good guys because the good guys always win. There's something in us, this consciousness of a cosmic conflict where we understand there's a difference between good and evil and there's even two different sides that oppose each other, that war against each other. And it almost seems like it's something that God implanted in each of us. A consciousness of that conflict, a knowledge of the good guys, the bad guys, of good and evil. In scripture, it says it this way. It says that our ultimate battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, our story that we'll read today dramatically depicts that cosmic conflict. And so why don't you read it with me? Beginning in Mark chapter five, verse one. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadareans. And when Jesus had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling amongst the tombs and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains has been pulled apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. Now, some translations will render that different. There's a Greek linguist that I love to read who points out that 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 translation of the word and is probably not the best because the he ran and worshipped him makes us think that he's joyful and excited to see Jesus afar off, and that's why he ran. But the better rendering from Greek to Latin to English seems to be that he ran, but he worshipped him. The idea is that he ran at him with, with all of what we'd expect from the man who lived amongst the tombs, who's possessed by demons, that he ran with intensity, that he ran with loud screaming, that he ran trying to intimidate. But as he got close to Jesus, he crumbled before him. And then from that position in front of Jesus, he cries out with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, son of the most high God? I implore you. Now, it's not a word we use very often. It's a pushy term. It's not him just coming and saying, I'm, I'm asking kindly to adjure, to implore, to command you by God that you do not torment me. For he said to him, Jesus did, come out of the man, unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion. He doesn't give a name. He gives instead a number. My name is Legion, for we are many. 
Also, he begged Jesus earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now, a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged Jesus, saying, send us to the swine that we may enter them. Okay, remember what we're picturing. He's just come through a storm across the Sea of Galilee to the eastern side. If you've ever been to Galilee, the eastern side is mostly cliffs. It's, it's not very many places that have little villages that come right up to it. But as Jesus embarks off the boat onto the land, he's met by this demon. And now up in that village, this demon-possessed man is begging, just send us into the swine. And at once, Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000 of them, and the herd ran violently down the steep place, picture off of the ledge and into the Sea of Galilee and drown in the sea. So those who fed the swine, they fled. And they told it in the city and in the country, and they went uh, to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Remember the last story, Jesus on the sea. They're terrified of the storm, even more terrified, though, of Jesus when he calms the storm. They were terrified of this man. Now they're also afraid yet again because now they see him sitting clothed and in his right mind. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with Jesus to leave, to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged Jesus that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go to your home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him and all marveled. It's a big story with a lot of detail. And there's three things that I'd like to do with you as we view this story. And the first is I want to talk with you about demonology, about kind of the theology of demons briefly. And I'll move quickly through that. But then I want to talk to you about the lessons for the first century audience, because this is a deeply pictorial story. And much like last week's story, I think is pregnant with meaning that we might overlook just by viewing it with a 21st century set of eyes. So we'll talk demonology, we'll talk lessons for the first century audience, and then lessons for the 21st century reader, that's you and I. So we'll move quickly through this first section of demonology, really demonology and angelology. Let's talk about what the scriptures teach us about this idea here. And and why would we slow down to talk about this? Well, not because this is my hobby. I like the Padres and I like the beach. Like those are my hobbies. I, I don't though, however, I don't want to assume that we all approach this text in agreement, viewing things through the same lens. Because there are a lot of people, I think, in what we would call our modern world who would scoff at my own presupposition when I approach this text. And my presupposition is that there are spiritual beings that are at work in our world. And others would disregard that and say that that's an archaic thought, that it's an antiquated thought that demons exist. And they would look at this story instead and say, no, this is a story about a person who's suffering from mental illness rather than being someone who's plagued by a demon. And Matthew chapter four, if you're taking notes, write down this verse, Matthew 4:24. It's an important verse in the gospels that I think God purposefully placed there because it's talking about Jesus. And here's what it says. 
It says, and his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick people. That's one category. They were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and all those who were possessed by devils. That's a second category. And those which were the lunatics, and those who had had palsy, and he healed them. That creates a third category. See, here's what I want you to see in this little verse in Matthew 4. The Bible differentiates between mental health issues physical health issues, and then spiritual issues with demons. In fact, when we read in Matthew, when it says lunatic, it's not, it's not just a, a weird term that's a, God being mean to people or something like that. It's not an insult in that day. It means any insanity or irrational behavior that's a part of someone's life. It's talking about mental illness. So what I'm telling you is that the scriptures themselves in talking about Jesus being here on the earth, it's very specific in saying that Jesus had authority over and power to deal with things that were physical issues, mental challenges, and spiritual maladies, that he became the remedy for all three of those things. So if you're quick to assume that this story of the demonized man is really just a story of a person who's suffering from mental illness, then you have to stop and consider that scripture tells you that that's not necessarily the case. And in our story, There's little tidbits of information that should leave you scratching your head thinking that that's just not the case. Like, how does this man know who Jesus is? This is Jesus' first journey into the eastern region of Galilee. This is now Gentile territory where Jesus is a foreigner. Jesus is not an anticipated Messiah. He's no longer amongst the Jews. We assume that Jesus has never even been to this region of the country. And yet this man runs at Jesus and knows exactly who he is. It's not just how does he know who Jesus was? How does he know that Jesus was the son of the most high God? Because to the Jews, that was the God who created the universe. Or for the Greco-Romans, that's the chief God in Greek mythology is who he addresses him as. Or why? If this is just mental illness, why would he assume that Jesus could or would torment him? Why would he beg, don't do that because I think that that's what I'm anticipating that you will do. Listen, I believe that it's very clear that our story is about something far more dark and troubling than mere mental illness. And I'll tell you in my own life, I've been in some situations where someone's mental illness does manifest what it, at the surface can be viewed as some sort of a demon that's present, but then you, you get beneath the surface and realize that what's really present really is just simply mental illness. I've been in other situations, though, where I didn't feel that I could differentiate between the two, between mental illness and the presence of a demonic entity that was messing and ruining, messing with someone's life and ruining their life. But I've been in other situations where it was very, very clear that a person was possessed and tormented by a demon. A few years ago, I walked into a room one night where someone had called me and said, uh, hey, we need you in this other room. So-and-so is looking for you. And so when I hustled and opened the door into that room, as soon as I did, I was, I was greeted by a very disturbing sight of an older, very uh, petite, frail, older woman whose body was contorted and twisted in a way that I didn't know was really humanly possible. And then she turned her head and looked my direction across the room and addressed me by name in a very, very uh, non-comforting tone. <laughs> where she turned and looked at me, arched the back, the whole, everything that you'd expect. And with a gnarly voice, she said, you're Trevor and you have no authority here. Um, For me, I was a little stunned. (laughs) Didn't know what I was walking into. It was not some heroic moment, but I will tell you, I snapped back into reality really quick when I realized the, the insecure and threatened place that that demon was speaking from. 
that for them, their goal, that demon's goal was to intimidate everyone in the room. So we would all back off and leave it alone. And for us, the next few hours, a group of us, the next few hours for us as we prayed with this woman and for this woman were really tragic because it was like watching a woman who was being abused and manipulated as this demon would manifest and then scream at us and at the same time exploit the hurt that she had been through in her own life, reminding her of all the abandonment she had been through, reminding her of tragic uh, situations that had happened in her life and then telling her, no one will ever love you like I do, exploiting it and twisting things. And in the hours that we spent sitting with this woman and praying with this woman, what I saw more than anything else, though, was the incredible power of Jesus on display like nothing else I'd ever seen, honestly, where we would rebuke this demon that would manifest and crazy things would happen, but would manifest and we'd rebuke it in Jesus name. And the thing instantly would be frozen in time mid-sentence and then go dormant. And then we, the woman would sit up and we'd talk with her and we'd reason with her about what this was. And then we'd pray with her and the thing would come manifest again. Uh, its initial uh, kind of goal or approach with us was that it wanted to intimidate and scare us off. It was cursing at us. It was doing these superhuman-like weird, creepy things. It was vacillating between Latin and English. It wanted us to make sure that we knew that it had been about this for centuries and, and then was mocking us, kind of like in this story. You see it at play a bit with, do you know my name? And then thrashing around and convulsing when we would rebuke it. All of that totally shifted, though, to it begging for mercy and requesting to be able to leave. Because of the power of Jesus' name. Just simply saying, we rebuke you in the name of Jesus, and instantly it was frozen still. And I'll tell you, that night impacted me uh, definitely in a couple of different ways. One of them is, I've never been into horror films, but I'll tell you, I'm not about to watch some creepy horror film about demonic possession because it's too real. I will tell you, though, that night I slept fine. I drove home in the dark. It was very late at night by the time I got home. I laid down in bed, didn't keep the lights on. I felt totally safe and comfortable because I've never had the confidence that I had, have had since that night in the power of Jesus' name. Amen. Insane that like... I let you clap because you're not, I realize you're not clapping for me. It's the Jesus' name. <laughs> Insane to me that Jesus' name, like hell was shuddering at his name. We could do nothing to help this woman. It was incredible watching all that play out. And so because of that, I slept fine. Now, I will just say this. Don't go looking for this kind of stuff. It's, it's watching someone. It really is. It's watching someone be abused and manipulated. No one wants to see that. However, if you're ever in a situation where you feel like you're concerned, like, is, there, is this person possessed or, or what's going on here? I say, put a hand on that person's back and begin to pray in Jesus' name. And you'll know real quick if something's there or not, but you'll also know real quick the power of Jesus, if he's your Jesus that you're calling on. So I think that these things still do happen. I think that this is not just an antiquated idea. I, I don't even think that for some who'd even look and say, well, even back then, this really didn't happen. In fact, the Bible all throughout it teaches us a lot about the idea of angels and demons. The Bible teaches us that angels were a part of what God created. And in Ezekiel, Isaiah, and in Revelation, it gives us a glimpse both back into time and into the heavenly realm where there's a specific angel named Lucifer who rebels and then takes about a third of the angels with him in that rebellion. Those fallen angels who have fallen from grace, they are now known as demons. 
Lucifer's rebellion, when it failed in heaven, he and his, his little legion, they, they bring the rebellion down to earth. Since he can't attack God directly, he then sets his sights instead on God's master creation on mankind itself. Listen, angels and, and fallen angels, they're actively working in the physical realm of men. We know that. Even think in the Old Testament, in, in the book of Kings, where Elisha, the prophet, is overwhelmed and God opens his eyes to see not just demons, but angels, God's forces who are there protecting him. Listen, these beings can manifest in and through physical beings. They are like a parasite looking for a host. And in scripture, it seems that it's also true that at times they're stationed. These demonic entities are stationed in geographic areas. Think the prophet Daniel, where he prays and where God sends a messenger angel to bring him a message. But that messenger angel was withstood, he says, by the prince of Tyre, who fought against him and wouldn't let him get that message to Daniel. It probably explains why you've walked into different rooms or buildings or even into a different region of the country or our world where you step into a situation and instantly feel creeped out and go, there's something dark that's present here. Well, according to scripture, that's very, very true. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, it says that he, the devil is what we call him, the accuser, or he, the Satan, the adversary, it says that he masquerades as an angel of light. That his work is not going to always be obvious. It's going to be deceptive. Now, the thing that's most important for us to know about demonology, though, is that they are not equal in power to God. They're not eternal. They are created beings. There's this image that seems to circulate on social media every year or so that's God and Satan arm wrestling over the earth. And it's really bad art, first of all, but... It's just a hokey picture, but it's, it's terrible theology. This is not how God deals with Satan at all. They are not uh, equal in power at all. In fact, they are a defeated foe through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Colossians chapter two says that Jesus disarmed our enemies and spoiled their plans and made a public spectacle of them at the cross. They are defeated enough that when we just speak the name of Jesus at them, they're frozen in time. They shudder in fear. Listen, they are destined for destruction. We know the end of the story. They lose and face eternal judgment. Satan's like a kid at a pool party who's getting pushed backwards into a pool. And at some point, rather than pushing people away from him, when he knows he's going down, he starts to reach out and grab others to take them down with him. He's a defeated enemy who knows that his days are numbered, who wants to hurt God by hurting those that God loves, by destroying the lives of people and their eternal destinations. When I was a kid, I remember my dad used to have far side calendars. Okay, some of you are old enough to remember them. I remember one, one day seeing a far side cartoon that was a bunch of people lined up in hell and it, it showed demons standing above them and Satan cracking a whip on them and they're standing in line for coffee and someone gets his coffee and takes a sip and it's cold. And so he just makes the comment, man, they thought of everything here. It, it's silly. But it almost gives us a glimpse into much of what the culture views hell as. Satan is not running. This is not his empire, his kingdom. Hell was a place separate from God, a privation of the goodness of God, that, that removed from the presence of God, that God was going to create a place for Satan and his demons to receive eternal judgment. The place was made for them to receive the judgment that they deserve, not a place for them to rule and to reign. And the only reason mankind will end up potentially there with him, 
separated from God is because we've joined that rebellion against God. Listen, demonic possession still today is is surprisingly common in polytheistic settings, in third world countries especially, where you have a demon that that takes open worship or or communities that have open worship of lots of different entities and, and spirits, and those demons then will manifest in people, and then that person will show supernatural strength, and then the whole village and tribe will worship that entity. It's less common, for sure, here in maybe a first world setting, a post Christian society. Remember, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He's deceptive. There's an old saying that's got a lot of mileage on it. And it's very true. And that's that Satan's greatest lie he's ever told is that he doesn't exist. Think about that. The greatest lie he's ever told is that he isn't real. He's going about convincing people that there's nothing beyond this. There's nothing beyond what's seen. There's no spiritual realm. There's no God. There's no eternity that there's nothing to worry about. I mean, what would be more dangerous for our culture, for people to be plagued and possessed by demons all around us that are manifesting those demons, or for people in our culture today in the 21st century to continue believing that there's no higher power in spiritual beings at all, that there's no afterlife, that there's nothing beyond this. However, when you look at the influence of this demon at work in this guy's life, the evidence of these things is still prevalent in our culture today. The same byproduct of Satan's influence on this man are, are seen in our culture. Look at what's true of him. The depression, the self-harm, he's cutting himself, he's suicidal, he's isolated, he's broken. I'm not saying that, that you're demon-possessed if you're depressed or if you feel lonely. I'm not saying that at all. But look at how how this demon manifests, look at the fruit of its work in someone's life is so very destructive. And it's, it feels like earmarks on so much of culture today, on so much of the population today, which is not me saying that everyone is possessed. It's me saying I still believe that those dark forces are at work today. Okay, an important question before we move on to move into the lessons for the first century audience, because there are some that are really great to think about. Before moving on, though, I think we have to ask this question and answer it. Can someone who follows Jesus find themselves like this man? Were they possessed by a demon or even a bunch of them, as this man seems to indicate? And to that, I would give a very confident no, because Scripture teaches us that if you follow Jesus, that you're not just following a pattern, but when you ask God to forgive you of your sin because of what Christ did for you, that his Holy Spirit now comes and resides inside of you. And I don't believe that God shares that private apartment space with his enemy. In fact, scripture says that greater he that is in you than he that is in the world. And also, we don't have a single example in scripture of someone who's a follower of Jesus being possessed by a demon. In fact, demons seem to want to put distance between themselves and God's spirit who dwells inside of the follower of Jesus. Now, here's, here's where I'll differentiate, though. I do believe that a Christian, a follower of Jesus, can be oppressed. I do not believe that one can be possessed. The difference is possession, it speaks of an internal thing, a loss of control. It's like a hand that slides into a puppet to animate the puppet without its knowledge or without it giving power to it. That's what possession functions like. But oppression is different. It's an external presence that binds and restricts us, maybe even manipulates us, keeping us from being who God wants us to be, a person who could enjoy our life. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 27, Paul writes the church. Think about this. He's writing to followers of Jesus and he tells them, don't give place to the devil. 
That word place, it's translated from Greek to Latin English. It's, it's translated opportunity or power. Don't give opportunity or power to the devil. And the context that it's said into, the context is speaking about anger. Think about this. If prayer is opening a door of opportunity for God to come and do something powerful, then scripture seems to teach me that anger in my life that goes unchecked, that bitterness in my life that I refuse to uproot, that spiritual pride in my life that's cherished rather than repented of, then lust in my life that isn't dealt with, then substance abuse, then all of it gives Satan an open window of opportunity to reach in and unravel God's desired work in my life. It tells me that that's what's happening. You know, specifically for younger people, or maybe even those who have young, well, even I'd say for all of you, grandparents as well, the cultural outlook specifically on, on drugs right now is shifting. You've seen this in the last handful of years because our state has reclassified things as no longer being illegal. So for you, maybe as a follower of Jesus, your simple answer to why am I not getting high or why am I not smoking weed is simple. You've just said very simply before, well, because I need to obey the governing authorities over me. Can I, can I just give you another line of thinking that I think is worthy of even your own investigation? And that's that in scripture, Paul forbids things to followers of Jesus. And one of those things is witchcraft, which is actually the Greek word pharmakia, Greek to Latin to English pharmacy that he connects witchcraft, that there's something very dark about people entering an alternate frame of mind. A hallucinogenic or someone getting high is shifting them out of their normal frame of mind. And what scripture seems to imply is that at the same time, what it does is it opens up a portal, a very dark influence in someone's life. Now, here's what's interesting. Leading universities all over the world are doing studies right now, and you can Google this later, and I'd encourage you to, doing studies right now about early onsets of, of mental health disorders on youth and young people, young adults, who are getting high frequently, that what it's done is it's opened them up to where their mental health challenges have swallowed their lives up whole. Now, I would look and say, I think part of that is, is deeply spiritual and tragic. What we're chasing is not just a high or a break. What we're chasing is an open window and portal that allows us to be messed with in a way that I don't think God has designed us to be messed with. And so I would say for you who are younger, it's for you to consider as the culture is pushed back and said, this is no longer a big deal. Or maybe for those of you who have a voice in a younger person's life or even grandma and grandpa who have a voice into a family, I'd say, I think these are things that are worthy of your consideration and worthy of concern even. Okay, so take a deep breath because you've made it through the gnarly part. (laughs) Happy Father's Day. (laughs) Okay, lessons for the first century audience. This is one of the longest, most detailed stories that Mark records in his Gospels. Or in his Gospel. He only wrote one, but in his Gospel. It's undoubtedly because there's specific lessons here that the details are meant to open up for us to see. Especially if we are part of the first century people who with their worldview, with their culture, would have viewed this story. Would have read it and known of what Jesus had done. You see, our story, it tells us, takes place in the Decapolis. It's a Greek word, Decapolis, 10 cities. It's on the southeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. This is Gentile land. It's a federation of cities that was first colonized by Alexander the Great and then was conquered a century before Jesus by the Roman Empire. So for most people in this region, whether a Jew had snuck into that region or it's just Gentiles, they hated the Romans. To the Jews, Rome was evil personified. Rome was fueled and empowered by hell itself is what they viewed it as to be. The reason they viewed it that way is because of what the prophet Daniel said. Think about it. Daniel chapter 7. 
Remember, Daniel has this vision, and in that prophetic vision, long before the time of Christ, it's about a rise and fall of several successive empires. That first would come the Babylonians, and then the Medo-Persians, then the Greeks, and then the Romans also. And you remember that those empires were figured, they, they, were, they were depicted as beasts that emerged from the sea. If you were with us last week, we talked about ancient people groups as far back as the ancient Akkadian and Sumerian texts, the oldest writings we have from any human civilization, all reference the sea as being the hotbed of evil and chaos, that, that evil itself was at work there and that it emerged out of the sea is telling you that hell itself was empowering these empires, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans. Now track with me, if these people who are reading this story, who are hearing of what Jesus did in this moment... If they knew the prophet Daniel's writings, they knew two things. They knew that this would be the final force that would stand against them. They knew that this would be the last empire that would stand before them before God would intervene and kick down the empires of man. But they also knew, because of Daniel's vision, that these things, this entity, the Roman Empire itself, was powered by the forces of hell. And what they wanted then... Nothing more was for its power to be thrown, for Rome to be thrown back into the sea, the hotbed of chaos and evil. So imagine then, you're someone in the first century who's Mark's initial audience, who's reading this story, who's gathering together secretly because you're under massive persecution. Mark's gospel is the earliest to be written in the 60s AD. In 54 AD, a new emperor takes the seat of authority. His name is Caesar Nero. You've probably heard of him. He, he goes after Christians with such in, intense violence. Uh, when you read the stories, it's impossible. Man, it, for me, it's impossible to view it as anything other. This man was possessed by demons himself. The things he did so twisted, it, taking Christians, dipping them in tar, impaling them on large posts, sticking them upright, lighting them on fire to illuminate as human candles to illuminate his gardens in the evening while he'd ride his chariot around admiring the beauty of his private estate. Remember, he's the guy who throws the, the great fires in Rome around the necks of the Christians and pursues them and hunts them down and murders them. They're reading this story in the middle of that kind of tension. So think what would have come to mind. I think the first thing for a first century audience that would have come to mind for them is, is that Jesus touches the unclean and makes them clean. He touches what's unclean and he makes it clean. Chapter 5 deals with Jesus restoring of this demonized man, his healing then of a woman that we'll talk about the next time we're together, who was sick for 12 years, and then the res resurrection of a dead little 12-year-old girl. These are stories of Jesus interacting with hopeless causes, where Jesus alone could bring them hope again. All three were unclean, but Jesus would make them clean. To the Jew, the worst thing that could happen to a person is for them to be pronounced unclean. And this man would have been pronounced that for sure because he's living in a Gentile land, apparently surrounded by pigs, living amongst the tombs, amongst the dead, and he's inhabited by demons. And apparently this man was exiled from human contact either voluntarily or forcibly. We'd assume forcibly because it says that they tried to restrain him, but he had this supernatural strength. They could not restrain him. He was a menace and a mess. His life was in shambles living in a graveyard as an outcast, in isolation, self-destructive and suicidal. In fact, verse four, when it gives the descriptive words of him, it's all descriptive words that are taken from the animal kingdom, talking about trying to tame a wild animal. 
Satan in the story is destroying this man's life. In fact, Luke's gospel tells us this story and mentions there's two demon-possessed men who gathered there, but he, this one who calls himself Legion, was the more extreme of the two cases. Satan has done that to him. Society then compounded the problem by isolating him, pushing him away. But Jesus does the opposite. Jesus brings him near. The story gives a very extreme example of what Satan can do to a person's life. And at the same time, simultaneously, it gives a beautiful reminder of what Jesus is capable of doing and longing to do with a life. You see, Jesus crosses this chaotic sea to keep an appointment with this broken mess of a man in order to look this man in the eye and to calm the chaos that he was dealing with internally. And it would serve as a reminder for the first century audience, the readers, that Jesus touches the unclean and makes them clean, that he's capable of saving and setting free and changing the absolute worst of society, that there is no such thing as a hopeless cause. No such thing with Jesus. But the second thing I think it would communicate to a first century audience really quick is that Jesus also had authority over Rome. Had authority over Rome because Rome was viewed as the monster of all monsters. They were the unclean, vile, and violent ones. Uh, Referred to, uh, those who were occupied in Roman territories, referred to the Romans as the pigs, the symbol of paganism. And the scene in Mark's story here that he recounts for us for his first century audience is deeply pictorial. Israel is like the man who's terrorized by these demons, who's ruling, who's being ruled over with some outside force and power. What is your name, Jesus asks. It's remarkably the question that God asks of Jacob and then changed his name to Israel and then makes promises to him to never leave him and to make them as numerable, his descendants, as the stars in the sky. Now, I don't know in the story if Jesus asked the man or the demon his name, but in our story, what we know is a name is not given. Instead, a number is given. The man says, I'm plagued by legion. The Roman army was split up into legions, each one numbering as many as 6,000 soldiers. In this particular region, it was the 10th legion that occupied Judea. In fact, if you follow us on a social media platform, early this morning, I posted on our story on Instagram and on Facebook a photo that I took in Jerusalem uh, at a museum because they found uh, on, on bricks from buildings, ancient buildings that they found the ruins of on bricks. And then historians talk about it also being crests on flags and on ships for the 10th Legion. Their symbol, the 10th Legion, that historians say were present during this time and occupying Judea, this area, the 10th Legion symbol were twofold. It was a ship because they were the ones, the 10th Legion in Latin, I can't remember the word, but in Latin it meant of the sea straits. They were the ones that emerged from the sea and here now they're being sent back into the sea, but their other symbol was the pig. So all over Judea, you need to know every Roman building that was made or even that they forced other people to make for them, as those bricks were hardening, they'd stamp it with a symbol of ex fuentenis, the, uh, the legion X, and then the symbol of a pig on every single building that they erected, on every flag that they carried. The pig was deeply pictorial to the people who were hearing this. In fact, there's one author, he's a historian, who claimed that the governor of Judea had uh, 2,000 legionnaires from the 10th legion that were available at his disposal, that that was seemingly the number that everyone knew were occupying the land during this time. And it's interesting that it's 2,000 pigs that they enter. In fact, in verse 11, when it says the herd or the band of pigs, it's the same original word that's used to speak of a group of military cadets. 
we're missing some imagery that the first century audience is getting. Because these pigs are going to be driven back into the sea like the Egyptians before them. The captors of Israel will be overthrown by God. I think Mark purposefully leaves no doubt in the minds of his Jewish friends that the pigs in the story represented the army that occupied this land empowered by evil. Mark's story is in effect promising that Messiah, when he returned, would drive their enemies back into the sea as he had earlier driven his four-legged friends into their fate. It's telling you that Jesus has authority over Rome. He's reminding those who are oppressed and vexed by the authorities over them that one day Jesus would overthrow all pain and oppression in the world. By doing so, this is the other lesson for the first century audience, then we'll wrap up with some quick application for us. But by doing so, he expresses a third thing to the first century audience, and that's this, that Satan's their real enemy, not Rome. Think about this, that Satan was the real enemy, not Rome. Think of the demonized man who who terrorized this community. Ultimately, the power or the problem was the dark power beneath the surface. Rome may have been the face of their oppression, but Satan, hell itself, was the force behind their oppression. It'd be too easy for them to throw stones at Rome and to blame them and hate them. But their real enemy was not Rome, it was Satan. It's easy for us to find ourselves fighting people we ought to be saving. And the story, I think, served as a reminder that Jesus was promising to end their oppression. But I think there's also a challenge here to love rather than hate those who oppress them, to save them rather than fight with them. Now, what does all of this mean for us? This is how we'll land the plane. The the 21st century audience, we read this story and we're looking in, in a sense, on someone else's mail. But these are timeless things that speak into our lives, not just truths about God, but even truths about our own life. So what are we meant to see here? I think the first thing we're meant to see is what we just said about them, is that we can end up fighting people we should be saving. I think that's the first lesson for us, that we can end up fighting people we should be saving. That as we've talked about in the last few weeks, that we aren't meant to take a sword into a field that we're meant to seed, water, and then harvest. That we might even be hurt by them, or you might feel that they are your enemy, but ultimately evil and hurt will be put to an end when Satan is taken out of power. That person might be the face of your oppression, the face of your frustration, but Satan is the force behind your oppression and frustration. So if you're going to be angry, make sure you're angry with your real enemy. It's too easy for us to throw stones rather than to love people. But we, we may be throwing them at people who we ought to be praying for. We may be fighting with people who we ought to be saving. Like real talk, just think about in the last year and a half. In our country during the COVID era, we have dehumanized and demonized those who don't think like us. Those who don't share our opinions. All of culture has done this. This is why we're more divided than when this started. But as followers of Jesus, we ought to be the exception to the rule and to the norm. We need to be careful that we don't end up fighting people, that we ought to be looking at them as the people that we should be saving and loving. And the second thing for us as the 21st century audience, looking at this story, it's that we, what what for us may feel like a failure is not necessarily one, at least not to God. What may feel like a failure is not necessarily one, especially not to God. Jesus in the story, he's asked three questions. He's asked a question by a demon and then by the community that rejected him. And he answered yes to both of them. 
But he answered no to the third question. And it was the question that was asked by the man who he had just set free, who looked at Jesus in verse 19 and said, let me come with you. Let me come and follow you. And instead, Jesus sends him back into his own country to tell his own people of what Jesus had done. And later in Mark's biography, by the time we reach chapter seven, we're going to re-enter the Decapolis, the federation of 10 Gentile nations on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And this time he's not greeted by a a lonely demon possessed individual. Instead, he's going to be greeted by crowds of people who have heard the great things that he's done. He told him, go home and tell your own people. Listen, sometimes it's much easier for us, I think, to go halfway across the world than to go next door or just down the street to tell someone about the good things God has done in our lives. But look how Jesus used this man's simple story of how he set him free from isolation, from depression, from suicide, how Jesus set him free powerfully. No one who had known this man could argue with the fact that something dramatic and even miraculous had taken place in his life. He was the legend of all legends, I'm sure. This uncontrollable madman that a a whole village is trying to, to fight with and to put in chains and they can't overpower him. They know him only as legion. But now echoing throughout the 10 cities is the unbelievable story of the man who could deliver even him. And because the one who they knew only as legion stayed in the region, others could see for themselves that the miracle was true and that Jesus' power could be trusted. For this nameless man, though, it would have made perfect sense in his mind for Jesus to to do things his way, which was, Jesus, just let me come with you. But Jesus didn't, and that left him with a choice to either give up in frustration. Why would you not allow me to have it this way? Or his choice was to continue on in faith and obedience. He could have given up, but he didn't. And look at what happened because he didn't. Look how God used it. Listen, my friends, choose to continue on in faith and obedience, even when things may look like they're falling apart or failing. Okay, for us, another lesson, a third one, is that Jesus became unwelcomed when his impact was unwanted. That it's possible for Jesus to become unwelcomed And we'll often find that it's because his impact is unwanted. How sad is it that the story feels unbelievable until you get to the point where all of a sudden, because of Jesus healing this man, setting him free, because Jesus does that, it's now affecting people's pocketbooks. All of a sudden, the unbelievable story becomes believable when they come and say, get the guy out of here. Because those pigs going off the cliff represented money to this village. It it represented safety and security. And because now what Jesus has done in setting that man free was at a cost to me, now they're saying, Jesus, just get out of here before you do anything else like this. Set anyone else free and actually have it cost me something. Listen, a lot of people, even today in the 21st century, are fine with Jesus, as long as he doesn't change anything. It's like getting married and saying, I'm fine with this idea, as long as you don't move the furniture, as long as you don't shift my schedule, as long as you don't change my rhythm or my habits, Or tell me what's normal to me is weird to the rest of the world. As long as you don't do those things, this idea of marriage sounds really great and really easy. Listen, we're good with Jesus as long as he doesn't ask me to do something I don't want to do. Or tell me not to do something that I have a natural impulse to do. As long as he doesn't touch my dreams, my ambitions. As long as following him doesn't affect my money. As long as he doesn't address my lifestyle 
or my relationships or my sexuality or my sexual expression or, or the money that I spend or the way that I invest my time. I like Jesus the add-on like a fashion accessory. It's just a little purse I take with me because it makes me feel better and look better. But Jesus is not that. In fact, he told us that there'd be a cost involved in following him. And if we claim to be following Jesus, but cannot find a single area in our lives that provides evidence that we're paying a cost for that choice, then maybe we have to take a hard look in the mirror and be willing to admit that we're not truly following him. You see, the story reveals this terrible problem, not just with the man who's demon-possessed, but with the culture around him. They saw this man sitting clothed and in his right mind, but they would have gladly traded his well-being his health for their own wealth. They would rather the man be in ruin, that he remain tormented, than they be inconvenienced and lose their way of life. In the end, they, in the end, we, wanted Jesus to rid the world of the evil out there. But Jesus was more concerned about the evil in here, in the heart of man. And he reaches into their own hearts to reveal how broken they were too. The great calm that came over the sea in the previous story is now matched by the great calm that governs the man who sits clothed in his right mind at Jesus' feet. And there's deep irony in this story that the guy who was once crazy is willing to lose and leave everything to be with Jesus. And the supposed sane and rational people in society and culture are the ones who are disappointed and trading Jesus and even willing to trade someone else's broken life for their own comfort that they're the same rational ones. Listen, why would Jesus in this story, is Jesus a bad guy because he cast the demons into the pigs, which then causes the demons to, to run off the cliff and to die? Well, listen, driving the demons into the pigs was proof to all the spectators that Jesus did the miraculous, and it was proof that this guy was healed and that he could come back into society because look what just happened. Obviously, they're gone, and so they could welcome him back in. Listen, driving the pigs into the lake was a sign that his cure was permanent, that there would be no coming back from those things. Jesus was making a statement here when he allowed the demons to enter the pigs and ultimately destroy them. The thing that he's making a point of is this, that all the wealth in the world is not worth a human soul. That all the wealth in the world, and that's what this was. This is wealth. This is, they would monetize these pigs. This was a form of currency, but all the wealth in the world is not worth a single human soul. In another place, Jesus would say, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Jesus in this moment is not lacking compassion for the pigs. He's displaying proper compassion. Pigs for a person. He's saying, whatever it takes, I'm going to redeem him. Whatever the cost, I'm going to make things right again. The 21st century for us, what's the lesson? The lesson is that Jesus touches the unclean and he makes them clean. Don't just slow down and think about this with me. You can close your Bible. I want you to slow down and feel this with me for a moment. That in our story, Jesus enters a graveyard and I think Jesus is willing to enter your graveyard as well of pain and hurt, a graveyard that's marked by lost dreams of deep scars. It's years ago reading something C.S. Lewis wrote where he talks about his coming to faith moment and he identified himself with this man, with Legion, saying that he found himself there and he found Jesus present with him amongst his tomb, amongst the graves. Slow down and think of this with me. 
You and I are a lot more like this guy, Legion, than I think we'd want to admit. See, like most cemeteries, the cemetery in the landscape of our own lives is a place of loss and of grief and, and definitely a place of despair. And throughout our lives, I think what we do is we break ground in that cemetery when our hopes grow, go unrealized. It's when dreams remain unfulfilled. It's when reality just disappoints us. And what we do is we erect a tombstone there with inscriptions on them that surround us, inscriptions that say things like regret, betrayal, and hurt and disappointment. What we've done is we've buried our hurts and we've created this graveyard, or maybe even it's true for some of us that others' actions created it for us. They dug the pits and erected the tombstones when they hurt us so deeply. But if we were honest in the in the graveyard that we find ourselves in, some of those tombstones are unmarked graves because it would be too painful for us to speak of, too secret for us to write it out. If we did, though, it would say things like, well, it'd say things like an abortion. It'd say things like molestation. It's the things we're ashamed of, like, like pornography. It would say hopelessness and suicidal. On that stone, it, it, it's blank now, but what it would have said is, is abuse and shame, fear and hopelessness, abandonment and rejection. It wasn't long ago, I sat with a young person who, who just made the comment to me. He said, I wish I was good enough to be loved by my dad. That's what's marked on that tombstone. Don't miss this. Possibly the scariest detail in this story is that Legion was forced there against his will, but at some point he chose to stay there. In fact, the story tells us he ends up fighting to keep other people far from it. That's where we find ourselves, which is so broken and so sad, is that we can find ourselves living amongst the tombs, alone and surrounded by our demons of, of cynicism and anger and apathy and addiction and bitterness and unforgiveness and loss and our hurt, and maybe we felt initially like we were pushed there against our will, but now we're hunkered down and we fight to keep everyone away from any of those wounds or hurts. But now we're entrapped. And listen, if we hope to be free from the demons in our cemetery, then Jesus alone, he must be allowed in. He's like the sheriff in the old Western film that would walk in and say, there just isn't enough room in this town for the both of us. He crossed the seas for you to enter into your graveyard in order to set you free of hurt and guilt and pain from your demons, the things that haunt you from your past. Listen, if you and your life are falling apart, know that Jesus alone can heal what sin and Satan has destroyed. Allow Jesus to walk amongst the tombs. He's capable of setting you free and giving you a fresh start. Know that Jesus alone can heal. I think sometimes the way that he does that is that we allow his body to walk amongst the tombs with us. And his body, he, he manifests, he works through the lives of his people. It's you letting someone come with you to those points in life and pointing at them and calling them what they are. 
and allowing Jesus to begin a healing work rather than fighting with people to keep them away from those areas of brokenness. It's letting people, inviting people into those areas of brokenness to hold your hand and walk through it. It's Father's Day. The truth is for many of us as adults, we feel like, hey, we can handle it. I got a lot of brokenness in my life. I got a lot of messy stuff. I do have a lot of tombstones that are unmarked graves because they're, they're so hard I can't even look their direction, much less take the time to name it for what it is. But I can handle it. But do you understand the impact it has on your spouse? Do you understand the impact it has on your children? Don't you see the way that it shapes and reframes the way that you identify, the way that you relate to not just your family, but the world around you? Don't we see that the brokenness in our lives that we say we can shoulder creates a toxic atmosphere that we're making other people enter with us? A toxic atmosphere where we're blind to what's there, where we're telling them that there's no problems. We need to invite them in to walk with us through those things so that Jesus can breathe new life and set us free from those things. Listen, if nothing else, it's, it's you willing to al- allow someone else to enter that pain with you if nothing else, to allow them just in it to sit and to pray with you. My friends, in this story, Jesus became this. By the end of the book of Mark, Jesus and this guy, Legion, have exchanged places, where Jesus would be stripped naked, where Jesus would be abandoned and isolated, where he'd be pushed out of the town, where his skin would be ripped open, cut apart by little stones that would be placed inside of the long whips that the Romans would beat him with where he finally would be placed in a tomb. Think of the the big picture of Mark's gospel when viewing this little moment, this small story. In order for this man to go free, in order for you and I to go free, Jesus suffered. Whatever it takes, he said, I'm going to redeem him. Whatever it costs, I'm going to make it right again. My friends, we will never allow Jesus to walk amongst our tombs until we trust that he loves us with the heart of a perfect father. We'll never let him in until we have so much confidence in our identity as his child. And the roots of that confidence are found in the cross, that Jesus would become this. That Jesus would be abandoned and cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that we could hear the promise, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Let Jesus into those dark places. And let him bring hope and new life. 